0: Hi and welcome! You are listening to Speeching It Real, a podcast where I interview speech-language pathologists who are just starting out in the field, from undergrads who are interested in becoming SLPs to those who are currently practicing clinicians. We will cover it all, including current graduate students, people in clinical fellowship years, and everything in between. Here you can learn all about what it's like to get started, how paths change, and connect with people that are going through the same things you are. I'm your host, Christy Ubieta, and I'm currently a first year grad student at CU Boulder. Quick disclaimer, all statements and opinions on this podcast are not reflections of the organizations or schools associated with the speakers. Each person's words reflect their own opinions, including my own. Hey guys, today we are joined by Allegra, She is a certified SLP in Colorado, California, Kansas, Massachusetts, North Carolina, and Texas. Allegra studied linguistics in undergrad at Duke University and received her master's degree in speech-language pathology at CU Boulder. She made the decision to pursue a lifelong dream to start her own telepractice, specializing in the treatment of stuttering and speech-sound disorders. Throughout the episode, Allegra mentions a variety of resources, which can be found below in the show notes. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Speeching It Real. Today, I have Allegra on. She was recommended by one of our listeners. Allegra, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. So I am an SLP based in Boulder, Colorado. I'm a private practice owner, and I focus on stuttering therapy. My private practice is called cadence speech therapy.
0: So how did you get into the field? What brought you here?
1: Yeah, I I get that question. I also get the question about how did you decide to focus on stuttering therapy if you don't stutter? So I guess I'll start with what brought me here. In 2005, I was living in Southern California. I was working at Western Digital Corporation as a product marketing specialist. And you and I chatted a little bit earlier about what our lives were like. Mm-hmm. And I was spending a lot of time. If you can just picture the movie, office space, picture sitting in bumper to bumper traffic on the 405 freeway, and then spending all day in a cubicle at the age of 24. So (laughs) that was my life. And I knew that it's not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So working in a big Fortune 500 company, you're just one of many. And I didn't come home at the end of the day really feeling like I understood my purpose Mm -hmm. at work. I didn't really know what I had contributed. And I felt like if I didn't show up, the world would just keep spinning and the company would go on. And yeah, I wasn't I didn't feel like I mattered that much. And I really wanted to do something ideally that would help others. And my undergraduate degree was in linguistics. So I thought about what could I do where I would be working more directly one on one with people, hopefully making a positive impact in their lives. And I guess for some reason, I felt that linguistics and speech therapy were connected. I never had speech therapy myself as a child, so I didn't know much about it. But I liked the idea of how I'd be working with people, helping people. And it felt like language and speech are such an integral part of our human experience. I could only really imagine what it would be like if we had communication challenges. So I got a US News and World Report Best Graduate Schools edition. I looked at the top 20 schools and shared that with my partner at the time and said, where are you willing to move? And he said, Boulder. And that's it. (laughs) Just Boulder. So I applied to CU and came out and had one of the first meetings I had at CU when I was a prospective student was with Professor Peter Ramig, who was the head of the stuttering department at that time. And he was a really, really well-known SLP, researcher in our field. And I was instantly intrigued with stuttering therapy. I, I felt a connection to stuttering therapy. I'm happy to get into more of that later. And also just the way that the therapy has such a strong counseling component, which I was also very interested in. And got into the program, packed up my things, Moved here in 2005, and I've been here ever since, so 18
0: years. Did you ever have an interest in any other areas of the field, any other settings or populations?
1: Yes. I do also work a lot with speech sound disorders, mm-hmm. and I also am very interested in accent modification. Uh, interestingly enough, we, when I was a student, we did not get any training in accent modification. So, this is something that I became very interested in because I just love meeting people from other countries. I really enjoy learning about other cultures. I have a musical background. I don't know if you know that. I'm a professional musician and I've been a violinist since I was three years old, and I still play professionally. And I feel like I really enjoy the process of kind of parsing out those speech sounds mm-hmm. and figuring out which phonological processes are involved or which sound substitutions are happening. I, I just really like that kind of like nitpicky the sound aspect of of that niche. So I do enjoy accent mod and
0: speech sound as well. Do you ever pull elements from melodic intonation therapy? I don't. I don't. Um I sometimes bring
1: music therapy into well into stuttering therapy. So if somebody plays a musical instrument and they know that I'm a musician, I, I also really enjoy like if someone's doing musical theater or acting. I really enjoy pulling in the arts,
0: mm-hmm.
1: involving improv, theater, and music as much as possible. But no, I don't. I don't do it. At MIT. Mm-mm.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about while you were in grad school, just a little brief part. Mm-hmm. So you said you were always pretty interested in stuttering, at least when you first. Got into the field. Did you ever experience any other settings before you got into the private practice and stuttering space?
1: Yeah. So there was a break between when I graduated and when I was out working. I was 12 days away from giving birth when I graduated, and I was on bed rest for preeclampsia. And mm-hmm. so I graduated on bed rest. And I spent the first year of my first child's life home. And I didn't really go back to pursue my CFY for, I want to say it was like almost five years. And when I got back into it, I started in a private practice that it was, I would say it was fairly generalist. So working with, there were literacy, language, learning disabilities, as well as stuttering and um, some other areas that we focus on. But it was fairly generalist. And at the same time, I also started doing early intervention. It wasn't through Child Find. It was through Imagine, I believe. I was working with a practice based in Denver. So I also did early intervention home visits, Mm -hmm. birth through three. And then I transferred. I, I stopped working at that generalist clinic, and I got a position with a stuttering-focused clinic here in Boulder, which was what I really wanted. I think there was an interest in, okay, like, we do mostly stuttering, but here we have somebody, like, maybe we could start to bring in some other populations as well. But I I have to be honest, like, I didn't always feel fully prepared or ready to do that, especially after taking a break. (laughs) That was challenging. I had to retake a praxis exam. That was lots of fun. I was actually going (laughs) to ask a couple
0: questions about this if you wanted to go go ahead. I feel like one of the greatest parts about our field is that people have that opportunity, especially because there's so many women in our field. Mm -hmm. They have that opportunity to take the time to raise their family. Did you feel when you came back, I mean, you had to take the practice again, so that part's not so great. Yeah. But did you feel like it was, you were able to get back into it or was it still a little bit hard? It was
1: hard. I mean, I think it was hard partially because... Of balancing. At that point, I had two children who were very young. I had a music career. So I had started in that period of time where I wasn't working in speech therapy. I had started a chamber music company called Front Range Strings. So I was juggling a lot more than when I had been a student. Mm -hmm. And I think figuring out that balance was really challenging. And then also trying to get back up to speed with current research, uh, joined speechpathology.com and took like a million CEUs Mm -hmm. and read all my old textbooks. And, you know, when I was a student in mid 2000s, we didn't have anything online, like all my notes and every test I ever took, it was in a big container in my garage, like covered with dust. And I got that back out and I tried to just read everything. So I think it was just challenging to like, have the confidence that I was competent enough to go back out there and give this a try. And then also, how am I going to do that? Juggling the lives of two young children and a music career that's really important to me as well. Yeah, it it was not
0: smooth sailing. Mm -hmm. So I want to get into some more detailed questions specifically about stuttering, but I do have one question to start with. What do you think you would give advice about for people who are interested in working in stuttering therapy who are just now starting out? As in their graduate students yes, or their okay. graduate students,
1: I feel it's really important to listen to the stuttering community. I know we get clinical opportunities at school to work with hopefully all all of the age groups: preschool, school age, adolescent, adult. This is important. Obviously, we need training in uh, holistic assessment, but. Something really changes when you attend a stuttering conference or attend a support group meeting or go just to any event where I would say the primary voices are the voices of people who stutter and we take more of a back seat, and we just really listen to what it is that matters to people who stutter and what they feel is most helpful and what they feel has not been helpful. and. All the clinical training in the world, when you really start to become a better listener, it will really shift the way that you do your therapy. Mm -hmm. So I would suggest if people are interested, get out of the clinic, get out of your school, go to an NSA conference, a SA conference, go to a friend's conference, talk to people who stutter, ask them their story, and listen.
0: Excellent. So... Is there advice that you would give to people who have finished their CF, to people who are starting to work with people who stutter that are past their CF? It's really important to keep
1: our finger on the pulse of what's happening in terms of the stuttering therapy narrative. There's a lot of research out there. If we rely only on prior research and don't take into account what's coming out now that we have more holistic assessments like the OACs, the overall assessment of the speaker's experience, um, the kitty cat. I, I care a lot about the feelings and attitudes that we're seeing in terms, not just of assessment, but like what are we seeing throughout the therapy process and afterwards. So I just, I guess I would say make sure that however you are looking at an individual building a plan Um, considering your goals and progress. Just consider the whole person. Look further than fluency counts. Um, Be mindful of how a lot is changing and shifting right now. It's a very exciting time for stuttering therapy, especially in our country. I see a lot of change happening. And um, just I would say just keep an open mind about that. And yeah, don't, don't get boxed in by any sort of like fluency metrics that you're supposed to attain because I don't really think this this can apply when we look at how is a person feeling about their lived experience as a person who stutters. Definitely. I don't know if that was a cohesive answer.
0: No, I think it is. <laughs> and it, it actually led me to another question. Okay. People who are afraid to work with people who stutter or mm. people who just do not think that is going to be their population, especially in grad school. What do you think they should be thinking about and considering? Obviously, mm-hmm. you got to just try it, right? Oh, but yeah. But it is kind of scary, especially because as you, you had mentioned before, as a person who does not stutter, how do you decide to get into this? Mm-hmm. And further, how do you make sure that you're well-educated to do this? Mm-hmm. What do you su- – whoops. <laughs> <laughs> what do you suggest – for people who are just scared of it, Mm -hmm. especially in the grad school population? Yeah,
1: I feel like that was a two-part question. The first part being, um, what do you recommend for people who are feeling a little nervous or intimidated by stuttering? And the other one being about, like, when we're people who don't stutter, maybe how do we fit into this? Mm -hmm. Um, So the first part about What if you're feeling intimidated or a little nervous about working with people who stutter? There is no population that I love more. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but I love people (laughs) who stutter. um, And I do not mean to generalize. People who stutter have different personalities. They are different people, just like we are all different people. But um, again, I think I just really enjoy the storytelling counseling aspect of them bringing me up to speed on what's been going on in their lives. And what I can say to people who are maybe feeling intimidated is bathe yourself in stuttering voices. Just desensitize yourself to that feeling of I don't know how to react or how am I going to feel if someone is stuttering severely or strongly? We're kind of moving away from these terms too. So Mm -hmm. how am I going to manage that? Um, the, The more you listen, the more comfortable it becomes. So I was talking to someone, one of my adult clients the other day, and we did an exercise where he was teaching me how to stutter like him. So he was explaining to me what I needed to do to sound just like him for my stuttering pattern, my voluntary modeled stuttering pattern to sound just like his. And then at the end, I attempted it and he kind of let me know, if I got it, or if I didn't quite get it, or what I needed to modify. And at the end of this exercise, he said to me, I really loved teaching you about how I stutter. I really enjoyed that. That felt really great. But it was really hard to listen to you stutter. And he said, and for the same reason, I feel really uncomfortable when I go to stuttering support groups. I have a really hard time listening to people who stutter because it's like holding up this mirror, this part of and I would say he identifies more as a covert stutterer, which mm-hmm. is somebody who is kind of masking and hiding more of the overt stuttering behaviors of repetitions, prolongations, and blocks. So not everyone in his life knows that he stutters. And he said, when I hear people stutter at a stuttering support group meeting, I just get very uncomfortable. And it's like someone's holding up this mirror. And I wonder, is that what I sound like? And so we talked about just the importance of desensitizing yourself to listening more to stuttering voices, to being in the room with more people who stutter, because the more you bathe yourself in that, the more we all become desensitized, and it just becomes like this one piece of all the other things that are happening within a conversation where we're really connecting and talking and sharing, and you just get used to that. We need to desensitize ourselves to stuttering as much as people who stutter need to desensitize themselves to stuttering because we don't get to hear it that often. Mm -hmm. And anything we're not exposed to that often can be a little intimidating or scary at first. But when it becomes something that you hear all the time, or, you know, that you're just used to hearing in conversation, you're, you're just like, okay, that's great. Like, now I'm really just focused on the person's message.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So I would say, that's why I think it's so important to go to stuttering meetings and conferences and just be together with the stuttering community. And then there was a second part. Please remind me the second part of this question. Oh, voices of those of us who don't stutter. Mm -hmm. Where do we belong in this picture? Mm -hmm. So I get this a lot. I I get the question, why did you focus on stuttering therapy if you're not a person who stutters? And do we even belong in a clinical space with people who stutter if we don't stutter ourselves? So I get these two questions a lot. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to address them. So the first one, why did I get into this? I've already mentioned that I, I tend to love people who stutter and I don't mean to generalize. I, so So the first part of the question is how did I get into this not being a person who stutters? I, as you can probably hear in my voice, am someone who deals with a great amount of anxiety, generalized anxiety throughout my life. This is, again, not related to stuttering. As we know, you can be an anxious kind of person and stutter or not anxious at all and be a person who stutters. These are not related. But I had a lot of experiences in my life where anxiety had a negative impact, where I avoided things I was scared of, especially as a musician. Things that were really important that I looked back and felt really regretful about, um, like not trying out for, for a concerto competition or not taking an audition or not wanting to get on stage, because I just felt really terrified. And in working with people who stutter throughout grad school and beyond, I noticed how avoidance played such a huge role in their process, in their therapeutic process as well. What have I been avoiding because I stutter? And how do we confront things that we're scared of? And how do we identify targets that we know are important, that we need to do, but that we feel like we can't? because it's just so overwhelming and scary. And as I was supporting clients in in this journey of like doing things that were really scary, I started to be a little braver myself. And I really felt this was a very human bridge that was built where I'm asking you to confront this thing that you have not wanted to look in the face or I I don't want to get up there and the worst possible thing is going to happen and I'm not going to be able to talk or I'm going to get a terrible look or I'm going to get laughed at or someone's going to say something um, that reminds me of this traumatic experience I had as a kid and how we just support each other through that and realize we can get to the other side and we're so much stronger when we do. And I just felt myself going right along with them on that journey Mm -hmm. and being willing to do things that terrified me because I saw that they were doing things that terrified them. So... I kind of selfishly feel that I have gotten a lot out of working with people who stutter. I didn't know that going into it, but I just... You know, and I was thinking about this. I think a lot of grad students, too, may pick a niche that they kind of identify with themselves. Like maybe if they grew up with dyslexia or um, ADHD, like they really want to help those populations and they feel that they have some of that personal experience. I didn't have anything like that, but I would just sit in a room with people who stutter and I would just see myself in them. Hmm. I don't even know if that's fair to say, but but I felt that personal connection. Yeah. And I definitely felt that I was gaining so much from my time um, with people who stutter. So that's kind of why I think I really leaned into it and gravitated towards it. And then in terms of why does our voice belong here in this picture if we don't stutter? I think it's a really important question. And I've had a couple conversations with people who stutter where I felt like maybe I don't belong. And they convinced me, no, you do. So one was I had a new adult client come in and he was sharing with me that he had never had a speech therapist who stutters in his life. And he was coming back after a period of time. And we know that that client-clinician relationship is so very critical to long-term success. And so when he shared that with me at the beginning, I've never had a speech therapist who stutters, you know, I definitely question, am I... Right fit, you know, I'm curious why do you pick me if I don't stutter and this is something that might interest you? And he said, Well, just because you stutter doesn't mean you're the best clinician or the best fit for me personally. So, Mm -hmm. while that's something I notice, it's not the deciding factor, right? So, how good you are um, as a speech therapist, (laughs) this is more important to me Mm -hmm. than whether or not you stutter. I also was having coffee with a friend of mine who stutters who's a very prominent uh, activist within the stuttering community, very involved, both professionally and I would say, just in general, um, really supporting the stuttering community. And we had this conversation as well, where she had referred somebody to me. And I had sort of asked her, like, how do you feel about referring people to me when I don't stutter? And she said to me, you know as a person who stutters i have a lot of baggage she's not a clinician but she mm-hmm. said i just have a lot of my own personal experiences and feelings about being a person who stutters that i think it would it would definitely cloud my ability to assist somebody i have my own ideas about this sure. whereas somebody who doesn't stutter but is more you know your job is to listen and learn about like what helps and what doesn't help and about people's experiences and take your own clinical expertise and kind of put it all together and individualize a plan. Um, she said, I, I really feel that that you carry less
0: baggage. I thought that was so interesting. I had never thought of that before. A part of me also thinks it's, it's interesting to decide that that's a question that's appropriate only for the stuttering community. Because if you think about it, I don't I've never had dyslexia. I haven't had aphasia. Right. I haven't had a lot of the populations that we deal with like I haven't I wasn't a late talker so it doesn't change the fact that you can help somebody and it doesn't change the fact that you can bring in different aspects and different things for them to consider. It's interesting that this is a question, though, for this particular It is interesting, but I feel like there's a
1: reason for it. Absolutely. Because the stuttering experience is such a unique experience. Mm -hmm. If I see somebody out on the street and I'm chatting with them, there's a very strong likelihood that I have no idea that they have dyslexia or ADHD or even anxiety or any of the other myriad of things that they may have -hmm. been diagnosed with in the past. But as soon as that person goes to speak and they stutter... It's out there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, I think it was Chris Constantino, who's a researcher at Florida State, who just does a lot of really incredible acceptance-based research around stuttering, who talked about he, – he looks at stuttering gain. And are there any advantages to being a person who stutters? And there's kind of this idea that when you're stuttering, you're, you're completely exposed. It's so vulnerable mm-hmm. that you're sharing this, like, intimate thing about yourself. And it invites vulnerability from others as well. But just consider what that would be like to order food at a restaurant Mm -hmm. or pick up the phone and try and call customer service. And I think the stuttering experience is so very unique that I do understand why it's a question that people who stutter have a unique window into what that feels like Mm -hmm. and what that's like. But I also think. That whatever the population, and especially the stuttering community that's working really, really hard to reduce stigma and um, increase awareness, keeping it so insular could, could be harmful. I think that the more diversity of views and voices, the stronger the community, right? So I, I totally understand why it's a question. mm mm-hmm. And I still think there's a place for us as long as we understand
0: our place. Definitely. I have a question. So, you talked earlier about your client who was a covert stutterer, Mm -hmm. and you talked a little bit about those experiences. Two questions on that. Mm -hmm. The first one is Can a person be a covert stutterer without knowing that they were ever a person who stuttered? Mm -hmm. And then another question is. How do you distinguish that person then as a covert stutter? Yeah. So I went, hmm, because <laughs> I only ever talk to people who have
1: identified themselves as people who stutter. And then we can have a conversation around a covert stuttering presentation and what that means for them and and how that developed over time. I would I can't recall a time where I had a conversation with someone who stutters. And thought, oh, I think they stutter and they don't know it.
0: Mm, Okay.
1: I have had parents, for example, say, I don't think my child stutters. He thinks he stutters or she thinks that she stutters or she's feeling scared to speak. And maybe, I don't know, Mm. we were told that it could be stuttering, but I'm not sure. It doesn't sound like stuttering to me. So I've had some... Questions. I've also had a lot of people who identify as covert stutterers say, I don't, I either, I've had a speech therapist tell me I don't really stutter because I didn't have any of those core behaviors of stuttering in our initial assessment. They told me I don't stutter. Or I've had friends who stutter who say, Gosh, I really would like to go be part of this stuttering group meeting, but I'm not sure if I belong or if people will feel. Annoyed at my presence because I don't exactly sound like I stutter. Mm. So the first part of your question, I I don't know. It could be that somebody is struggling to get their words out. They're having difficulty with that initial voicing and airflow or sustaining airflow. And they aren't sure what's happening, I guess. But um In my own experience, like I said, because I work as a speech therapist and these conversations happen when people are either referred to me or are seeking help, they usually know. They know. And they're confused about why it doesn't sound like we think it should. And this, again, goes back to societal stigma and misperception. Totally. That when all we have in the media is initial part word repetitions, Mm -hmm. like that, or like this, like a little bit of struggle and a prolongation or maybe a block, but usually it's repetitions. That's really all anyone who's not part of our field maybe goes, oh, that's stuttering. So when you see somebody who's very covert, it's it's difficult for others to identify. Mm -hmm. But in my office, people who are covert They know that's why they came in.
0: Okay, (laughs) that's fair. I just, I've never thought about it that way. And then while we were talking about it, I Mm. started to think, I wonder what that would look like.
1: I'm sure it could. I mean, somebody might be like, it takes me a while to work up to turn my voice on to say what I want to say. And like, what is that? Um, Mm -hmm.
0: But yeah, I just, I haven't had enough of that exposure Again, people come in with this idea in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you had mentioned a couple of things, especially around language and how it's changing. Mm-hmm. I had two questions on that. Mm-hmm. So you had said, I think the word was severe and you're moving away from severe. Yeah. And, I Yeah. And then the other, you can talk on that one more, but one mm-hmm. of the ones I'm very curious about is fluency versus stuttering. Right. Um Especially the way that they call it in school. You know, in grad school, they call it fluency class. But the the primary thing you talk about is stuttering and some cluttering.
1: Yes. Okay, so first I'm going to talk about severity and severe. I think the reason why I'm careful about that term is that we're also kind of questioning is stuttering a speech disorder or is it a speech difference if it can't be cured, if you're Born with the building blocks of being a person who stutters, genetic um, links to stuttering, brain differences, and and so nobody is at fault for causing it. You're born with those building blocks, and you are a person who stutters, and maybe you are that one percent of people who stutter um, throughout your life. Then, is it a disorder, or is it a difference? And if it's a difference, how can we classify a difference as severe, which sounds a little more medical, or can we say harder stuttering or stronger stuttering or easier stuttering or mild, mild again? I mean, so I don't know. I guess this is an ongoing question in my mind. A lot of the assessments, including the OASIs, which I mentioned before, they are rated on a scale of mild to severe. So it's, it's difficult to move away from that. hmm and I've also heard, this was really interesting to me. I had someone call me out the other day for saying severe, saying, I don't know if I like that word. Maybe we could use a different word. And I was like, okay, well, I will defer to what word you feel is most representative or you know, that you feel most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. I have also listened to John Hendrickson, who's the author of Life on Delay. I would say he's also just doing really incredible work um, as an activist for the stuttering community right now. Um, just through his incredible writing and the national tour he did when his book was released. And he told a story. I don't know if I actually heard it during his book release because he was here in Denver. I also heard him on a podcast called Mile High Stash. And it was an incredible podcast episode. That's a music podcast. But um, the person who is the moderator of that podcast. Adam Perry is a person who stutters. And he was really influenced by John Hendrickson's work. And so he brought John Hendrickson on. So there's a great, that. <laughs> great podcast episode on totally unexpectedly on Mile High Stash. So I don't know if it was that or the book release. But I heard John Hendrickson say that he, he had some traumatic speech therapy experiences as a child, where he felt he was kind of infantilized. I, I, I hate to like retell other people's stories and get it wrong, but just that it didn't connect with him, like the exercises, the focus on fluency, the feeling that you're a failure because you can't achieve that. And like kind of the elephant in the room idea of like nobody really wanting to talk about this directly with him or explain to him what was maybe going on. And then finally, he met somebody who just looked him in the eye and said, you are a severe stutterer. And he talked about this sense of relief that came over him for finally knowing, like, it wasn't his fault, right? Like, it was identified and talked about and, like, we were naming the elephant in the room. We were saying, there it is and here's what it's called. Yeah. And he felt a lot of relief. And so I guess I'm, I'm still trying to work around, like, what feels best to the person I'm talking to. If they stutter severely and they would like that to be acknowledged, then I I will absolutely acknowledge that. Um, if that feels like a more negative word or more medical word, then I think that calling it hard stuttering or strong stuttering and being able to model or um, talk about how that feels when it's hard or when it feels easier, I,
0: I think that, that that works too. I, I'm still... The jury's out. <laughs> I I, <laughs> love, I love that answer. Mm. And it's something we talk about a lot in our, with our voice clients mm. too. We allow them to identify and label their mm. voice. Right. What voice are you using? Yeah. You're using this voice. Okay, what if we try using this voice? What would you, instead of rating their voices, right. we talk about how they would, what they want to call them and each client gets to name it their own thing so that they relate to it and it's personal to their experience too. If they want us to label it, we'll label it to like loud five or, you know, something like that. And then how they can make modifications to it based off of this other name that they can reach and identify as. Now oh, it's a little bit different because that's not the same thing that you work on in stuttering, but it's good to have that personal relationship with what,
1: well, no, Your I voices. mean, we do work on those self rating scales. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And yeah, I agree with you that letting the the client or person identify this is the word I would use or how it feels for me, especially coming in there and being like, hey, I'm not a person who stutters. I've worked with people who stutter and I you know, know some clinical things about stuttering, but really I am constantly in like a learning process here, learning the most from the people who stutter. Um, yeah, I think letting them come up with the words and the vocabulary is great. There yeah. was another part of that question before the severity one, by the way. Oh, it was fluency versus stutter. Fluency stuttering. versus stutter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we are definitely starting to feel negatively about the F word, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as, it, as it's called. It's um, take on its own new new connotation for the F word. <laughs> well, because fluency just kind of indirectly places a value on fluency. I agree with um, that. All of us have some degree of disfluency, not stuttering, but typical disfluency. Nobody is completely fluent. Why? And stuttering is stuttering, right? I can't say I stutter, even if I have typical disfluency. So why are we using the word fluency? It doesn't even make sense. Mm-hmm. It it indirectly says we're striving for this, Also, it goes back to that medical label that this is a disorder. Because you stutter, you have a fluency disorder. Mm -hmm. Well, if I stutter and I'm going to stutter, then it would be normal for me to stutter. Um, I will have moments of fluency and disfluency and stuttering. And why can we just not call it stuttering? Why can we just not use the word? And as somebody... I really, really respect. Said recently, um, just again, this goes back to the importance of vocabulary and what are we, what are we celebrating in terms of progress? H- or, like, what are we saying about stuttering if we're using fluency in the room when we're ta- when we're doing stuttering therapy? She talked about how the best speech therapist she ever worked with never celebrated fluency. Never, I mean. <sighs> you never got a gold star for fluency Mm -hmm. in her speech room. It was, we're going to celebrate stuttering because that's your voice. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And we're going to celebrate every moment that you went out and did that scary thing and stuttered. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about how did it feel? Was it hard? How did we react to it? Um, But we're going to celebrate all of it. We're going to go ahead and celebrate the stutter and I, so yeah, I I really don't like the word fluency. I'm not sure where it belongs right now.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of the ways that you're talking about stuttering, I see why you'd be interested in accent modification now that I'm thinking about it, yeah. um, because there's a lot of these elements and language used around it that are so important to the experience. Right. And the way that you're using language, again, to identify that experience and to make it Relatable for the person who's having it and then to destigmatize is great also in the accent modification community. Right. We
1: know that accent modification is not a disorder. Correct. That it's a difference. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And right. Why would stuttering be any,
0: any different? Different. Actually, when we first started in my head, <laughs> I was thinking that. I was thinking, I don't know why we consider stuttering to be different than an accent in the sense that it's not something it's something I actually like love when somebody has an accent and I love that that's carrying this language this experience this heritage this culture whatever it is that it comes with there is a reason for it and I hate the idea of like pulling that apart from who the person is and I feel the same way about stuttering I don't want to pull that away from who the person is like it's not necessarily who you are and it is it is a part of you, but it's also a beautiful part of you. And there's other things that make you unique, but it's a part of who also makes you unique, just like everything else in life. There's these pieces of you that can be cherished and can be loved and should be accepted. Right. So why do
1: we work on accent modification? Mm-hmm. And it's when there is this negative life impact where maybe a promotion's being withheld or an employer feels that you shouldn't have a client-facing role or give presentations, maybe it's hard for you to be understood. And so there's this communication obstacle. And that's why we're working on it, not because we're trying to take away your accent. And it's very similar with stuttering. We can't cure it. If If I put the focus on fluency and our metric is, let's see how fluent you can be, it's very easy to become covert and to use secondary behaviors and filler words, and you can pass the fluency assessment. But now you've just gone underground, and there's all this struggle and tension happening beneath the surface, and you are doing mental gymnastics to try and get out what you want to say. It's not, I haven't helped you. And there's all this fear. Mm -hmm. I have to make it sound this way, or people are going to think less of me. Um, So just like with accent modification, similar to stuttering, how do we find our real voice? and also have a neutral impact, right? No negative impact. My husband is French and he has a very strong accent. Maybe this is part of why I'm interested in accent modification. And I do share with people because they'll go, you know, it's so infuriating to sit at a restaurant, order food and have somebody look at you or just go, what? Or, you know, just always have to deal with these reactions. And, um, I understand from my husband's perspective, this happens all the time for him too. He'll order something. And this is one thing we talked about. We're like, are they judging the stuttering or the accent? Or is there a cognitive process happening where they're, instead of being able to focus on your message, what did you say? What did you ask for? They're just identifying, oh, that was different that was different than I expected. Mm -hmm. And I got thrown off by that. And now I'm processing it. And now I've recognized it. And I'm ready to ask you again, because we'll go out and he'll order, he has a hard time saying ours, like burger or margarita with a very French Mm -hmm. accent. And then instantly they'll go, what? And he'll kind of roll his eyes and say it again. And then there's inevitably a, where are you from? which he also hates. <laughs> and it's, again, just like stuttering, this thing that, like, you cannot hide this. You yeah. know, you are going to have to deal with this. So so how do we work on that? You know, we work on advocacy. We work on um, self-disclosure. We work on neutral responses to these kinds of triggering
0: reactions from listeners. Yeah. No you one, know? just on that note, because this is my own tangent that drives mm. me crazy, okay. whenever somebody says, where are you from, mm. no one's asking, Florida, Colorado, Texas. No, that's not what people are asking. Mm. They're asking you where your family's from because Mm. they are always targeting those roots because for Mm. some reason you're different. They're Mm. not asking what state you're from. They're not asking what city you're from. That's never where the question's coming from.
1: Well, that's interesting. So you think when people ask, where are you from, Mm -hmm. they're making a judgment about like where you grew up? Yes. Like even if it is about, oh, you have a southern accent, where are you from? Mm -hmm. Because you're different than where you are right now. It's going to help me build my understanding of you Mm -hmm. to know where you're from. See, I don't, I, I do hear that. I'm sure I'm sure that is true that we have that unconscious like need to know that and a bias about where people are from regionally but I also think when people have a foreign accent there's a, just a lot of genuine curiosity that they can't contain
0: mm.
1: where they think I think I know where that accent is from but do I and I kind of want to I don't I don't know if they're going oh and because I know you're from France I have a lot of preconceived ideas about French people they probably do but I also think there is there is some genuine curiosity. And this is also, by the way, something that I try and work with clients about is like, you're going to get a range of reactions. And there will be some really wonderful allies who know how to just be completely neutral. And there will be some people who really don't know the right thing to do. Oh, wow. I have stories about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to tell you a story because when we were working on self advocacy in these moments where we're confronted with like the wrong responses the ones that really just make it difficult to go on about your day so someone i had mentioned previous previously in this conversation but i didn't mention her name she told me it's okay if i share this story that uh, she's a person who stutters and we were out one day and we were at a coffee shop and she She and I were just having a great time. And then a friend of mine came in the door, who I respect so very much in the music community. And I was very excited to see him. And I said to her, oh, this is my friend. And I haven't seen him in a while. Is it okay if I you know, bring him over? And she said, oh, yeah, of course, no problem. And so I wave him over. He gives me a big hug. I introduce him to my friend. And we're chatting. And then at some point, he says, I'm sorry, I forgot your name. What's your name? And as we know, introductions are incredibly difficult for people who stutter. Saying your name is very challenging. So she proceeds to get very, very stuck on her name. Um, And I'm watching her have a very, very tense repetition on her name. And so she was very stuck on that. Mm -hmm. And she's maintaining eye contact. She's looking very comfortable, but it's a hard repetition. And she's working through it. And he does everything wrong in this instant. He is he starts to interrupt her and guess her name. Joni. Jacqueline. Oh no. Jessica. Oh my god. And she's just yeah. And that's me over there oh, with man. my hand on my head going what do i do like this is the i've brought this person over he's being just horrible in his response right now um and she was like cool as a cucumber she's just working through it working through it and then he says at some point she's still working through it it's taking a while he says oh jenny and then she keeps going J- J- jenny and he said got even worse oh, no. thanks for the hints and I was just oh like, gosh. I know, I was mortified. That's so bad. I was so mortified. And he, so I'm sitting there just kind of like, oh God, this is like the worst thing that could have happened. She's acting beautifully. He leaves, and I just like, yeah, head in my hands. I'm like, oh, Jenny, I'm so sorry. I am just horrified by the way that he handled that. And she kind of looked at me and she's like, okay. I deal with that multiple times a day. Um, and I said, but I have to tell you, I mean, I had two questions for her. One was, what could I do about this? Like, I I wasn't sure what could I do to be, like, the best support system in that case. And she's like, you didn't need to do anything in the moment. I, I got this. Mm-hmm. Now, if you see him again, you might want to let him know <laughs> it wasn't a hint. Yeah. <laughs> It's, you know, this this is what a repetition sounds like. And Mm -hmm. when it's a person who stutters, please give them some time and let them finish. Um, It didn't come from a malicious place. Of course, he just didn't recognize stuttering and didn't know how to respond. Um, So you could chat with him about that. That would be great. And she said, but um, but I was taking just how well she handled it. And I'm like, I would love to share that with people I work with and and how, you know, how you got through that. And she just said, well, You know, first of all, nobody talks for me. So even when he said, Jenny, I was going to finish what I was saying. As she should. He wasn't going to take my power away from me. Mm -hmm. So I was going to keep going. So that was a really important thing. And yeah, just the fact that like these are the kind of microaggressions that happen on a daily basis from people, you know, I know this person. He's a lovely,
0: lovely person. He just did all the wrong things. but he doesn't he doesn't know also. No. And no. And it's more about exactly what you've been talking about, advocating, explaining to just the lay person who has no exposure mm-hmm. what this looks like and what this means. Right. And how we continue to communicate that to various people in different areas and how we keep getting that message out about what stuttering actually looks like and again, destigmatizing, taking away that laugh lack of exposure.
1: Right. And different ways to advocate. Advocating by maintaining eye contact and finishing what you're saying.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. You're not going to say the word for me. I'll keep talking. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Yep. And back to the accent modification where this all came from, when we have those comments in a bar, which has happened so many times, where are you from? Oh, And then the other day we had, when I was with my husband, we she, he, she said, oh, I got it when I heard you say perfect. Can you say that again? and i immediately jumped in and said he won't say it now <laughs> you can't ask him to do that knowing that you know you're listening for the difference like and he just said there's no way i'm going to say that word now you know so mm-hmm. how do we just like hold strong in our boundaries and be like i know i'm going to get some not so great reactions and responses but i can be prepared and know how i'm going to be able to like stand in my truth and just hold my space for this yeah
0: definitely and i think like you said that's a lot of what you're working on also in therapy and what that looks like. Mm. So I think this leads into a question I've had that after reading your website, mm. I there was a quote that you had mm-hmm. specifically and I want to get into a little bit. It was oh, sure. that you guys break down misconceptions about stuttering and help your clients break free from self-stigma so they can confidently re-engage with their lives. Oh. What? I want to know what that looks like in the therapy room, but more than that, I want to know what are some of the misconceptions mm. Because it kind of comes from the conversation we just had in that experience that are most harmful. So what are those common misconceptions and how can we break some of those down to be less harmful?
1: Well, there's a lot. (laughs) Like, where do I start? (laughs) Okay, so I would say when working with younger ages, preschool, school age, I would say one of the more harmful misconceptions would come from parents who – um. Our, and it, and I, as a parent, I understand we are anxious for our children. Um, we don't want harm to come to them in this world. And it is, let's be honest, a really difficult experience to stutter in our society. So I understand the fear that we feel when our children stutter. But I think this idea that like fluency at all costs, like I want to fix this, Right. So like, can you, I've heard a lot, like, can you you tell my child to use their fluency strategies, please? They're not using them at home. Or, um, yeah, I got really frustrated this last week. Like the kid comes in, I got really mad at mom. Like she just kept telling me to use my strategies. And the mom's like, well, I, you were just, you, there was a lot happening and I couldn't, you know, get it. And I just wanted you to say it with your easy talk. And then, you know, and, and I'm like, okay, we need to have a talk about what what's going on in this conversation, what's being expressed? We are trying to learn as much as we can about stuttering, about our voices. We're trying to increase our own self-acceptance and um, increase our comfort with stuttering and our joy in speaking, right? So if we're constantly telling somebody, I don't like the way that this sounds, or the way that you're talking is making me nervous, or I need you to go faster, or something's wrong – All of these feelings are going to develop. So I think that that misconception that the fluency at all costs and we need to fix stuttering is a big one, especially for the younger ages. Mm -hmm. And for the older populations, I cannot tell you how many adults I get who clearly have they come in with a strong feeling about, look, they're like, okay. I looked you up. I know what you're about. I know you're going to like talk to me about stuttering is okay and stuttering acceptance and all this stuff, but stuttering is bad. It's bad. I have bad experiences with it. It's not a good feeling. I don't like how it feels when I stutter. I don't like what happens around me. So I think there's that misconception as well as like, there is no good in this. Don't convince me otherwise. I want fluency. Let's work on exercises that will make me fluent. And what I like to get into in stuttering therapy is like, how did that come about? What built this idea around stuttering as bad or wrong? And how is it serving you as a person who stutters, who has a stuttering voice? How is it serving you to feel this way? about your voice. Is it helping? Back to Chris Constantino, that researcher I was mentioning. He he said when people, and I know this is going to sound very black and white, but he he said that when people come into his office, he'll often say, and, and I hope I mentioned he's also a person who stutters and an SLP. He'll say, "The way I see it, you really have a choice. You can spend your whole life fighting this thing and trying not to stutter." Or you can accept it and learn to work with the cards you've been dealt in the best way that you can. You don't have to love it. You don't have to make it all sunshine and rainbows and warm fuzzies, but hey, you stutter. So what do you think would be easier, fighting it or accepting it? And that's your choice. I can't make you choose one over the other. And my job is to support you in your goals and hopefully give you all the tools that you need to make your own independent decisions, right? So yeah, I guess th- there are there are a lot of misconceptions because I think you were kind of talking about like from the client perspective, what mm-hmm. are the misconceptions? Yeah, yeah, um, and the idea too that well, because my child stutters, they may there's maybe like certain professions that won't be available to them, or. They're going to struggle in life because of this, for all of these different reasons. So I think breaking that and saying, you can stutter and do anything and be quite successful. Let's think about people and what leads people to success. Yeah. When we feel confident in our abilities, when we feel passionate about what we're doing. Yes, communication is really, really key. What makes a great communicator? Well, being charismatic or a good storyteller, or understanding how to craft a message, knowing how to resonate with an audience, you can do all this and stutter. And yeah, I think just kind of leading people to those conclusions on their own, mm-hmm. in their own
0: time. Absolutely. I love that. So when you're with a client and you're breaking down these barriers, do you always try to start more with building that confidence around their stutter? I always
1: like to get a sense of what do people know about stuttering when they come in? What is their knowledge of stuttering and their own stuttering pattern? And like, what are they coming in here knowing? And what have they maybe been told that was incorrect? For example, their whole life, um, they only received stuttering therapy in schools where all they worked on were worksheets and doing gentle onsets and stretches. And they didn't even know what causes stuttering or that it has nothing to do with intelligence or personality. Like, I, I always want to get a sense of, like, what do you know and what is really important for me to share here up front? But um, I think something I want all clinicians to know, which I learned in, like, this amazing webinar, I think it was Rod Gable who gave a webinar on solutions-focused brief therapy, (SFBT), which is all about helping clients to realize the solutions that they already kind of have inside of them. It's like bringing those to the surface. And what he said is that the success of our therapy has very little to do with our approach. And I think it was something like 80% of our success is building rapport and trust With a clinician. And I I like to tell students this as well, because I think you can go in there, especially as a speech therapist and be like, do I know everything there is to know about this disorder? Or like, do you know, do I have my plan lined up? And like, what are we going to do? And, and when really those first few sessions, the most important thing is, did we get buy in from the client, Mm -hmm. that I am the best person to support them through this, and that they trust me that I am listening and that my mind is open to what they have to share and that I'm truly on their team, right? That this, this is something I genuinely care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I get that buy-in, I know I'm 80% of the way there. I think your approach is like 10 or 15%. It just does not matter as much. So in those initial sessions, I definitely, I try to start with building the knowledge where are you starting from what are your goals what are you hoping to get out of our time together mm-hmm. what brought you in and you know what are you hoping to get out of this hour and what are you hoping to get maybe in the sessions that follow um, and and really building that relationship so that's where it starts
0: absolutely i think using this as something we can use in all areas of practice which is going in and making that connection and i love the idea especially for working with people who stutter about breaking down some of and you know sometimes you think that you know something about it and how your first initial idea is what do you know what do you want to know what can we help you learn about so that these again misconceptions can be broken down um i did have another question for you about misconceptions which is when you're approaching misconceptions how do you engage how someone's feeling about it at the same time because I I feel like sometimes you can have those feelings and those are still very real Mm -hmm. even if the misconception is there okay so the question is
1: How do we work through misconceptions considering a person's, like, feelings Mm -hmm. about this?
0: Like, even if it's not necessarily true, they still feel like that? Yeah. And so how do you navigate some of those things?
1: Well, our job, of course, is first to listen. And then it always helps to repeat it back. This is what I think I heard you say. Um, Sometimes when I repeat it back, I heard you say that stuttering is really bad. And it's really uncomfortable. And every time that you've been really, really stuck in these important moments, bad things have happened. And so it would be better if you didn't stutter. A lot of times I hear, well, that's what I said, but that doesn't sound great. <laughs> okay. Um, can, can you help me reframe that? Like, Can you just maybe share a little bit more about that? Um, I like to use a lot of the CBT and ACT, which are cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy um, principles and treatment. So, just kind of saying, okay, like, what is your worst fear around this? And what is the evidence that you have that everyone in the room is going to laugh at you or think that you're incompetent or that you're stupid? I hear that a lot because you stutter. What's your evidence? Well, this kid bullied me. Okay, well, let's talk about that. And let's talk about that kid and What do we know about that kid? And let's talk about the other kids who maybe didn't bully you. And let's just look at all the evidence. Mm -hmm. And what if we work through some of these scenarios and like, can you picture a different outcome and what might that be? Or like, maybe I understand that like this felt really awful, but realistically, if we just map out what happened, is this what happened that you were a kid and there's this one guy in the room and that guy was always a bully and he was being really mean and nasty to people. And he used that opportunity to, jump on you, but 99% of the other kids were neutral and maybe even uncomfortable with that bully's negative reaction. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Maybe, maybe that's what happened, but I still feel really awful about that. And I don't want to get back up and do it. And it's like, okay, I can understand that. If we don't get up and do that again, is it going to, you know, what kind of impact might that have on your life if you choose not to get up there and do that again? So I think it's just a lot of like reflection listening, Mm -hmm. um, reframing, and again, not telling people what to think or feel, but maybe helping to bring some of those things to the surface so they can start to investigate them a little more clearly. Mm -hmm. Because we all write a lot of stories in our minds about what others are thinking or like what this means. And it can keep us from the most important things in our life. That would bring us the most joy and fulfillment. And I believe that you can, no matter what, you know, we're dealing with here, anxiety, ADHD, dyslexia, stuttering, accent, differences, whatever, that we are all ultimately responsible for pushing through our fears, confronting things that are scary, and not letting these things in any way change the actions that are most important to us.
0: Definitely. Definitely.
1: Yeah. So we need to know, like, what matters to me? I say this a lot to clients, like, what's your motivation? Why does this matter to you? Does it matter enough that you might be willing to do this scary thing? Mm -hmm. Um, But again, I'm not here to tell anyone how to feel about stuttering. and. I think that's really important for us. Like clients come in, I've, I've seen this where they're like, I don't know, you're the expert. You tell me what yeah. should my goal be or what should my assignment be this week? And I I will tell them, hey, I am n- I'm not the expert. <laughs> I am somebody who loves this. You know way more than I do about what's going on for you, uh, how that's feeling and why. I, I will tell you, at the end of our session, everything I heard and everything that sounds like it might be impactful based on what you shared with me. But ultimately, I want you to choose something that feels really important. When we select those targets, it's not because I'm an expert and I'm telling you to do this. It's because it's something that you really want to do and need to do. And whatever your fear of what's going to happen when you try this thing, like it's so important to you that you're going to be willing to bust down that door and do it. Love that. That's great. Do you take on CFs? I get a lot of requests, but so I'll be honest, I don't feel well set up to support a CF because I run a part-time practice. I work out of my home. I have a home office. I mostly do virtual therapy right now. I have six state licenses and I'm seeing a lot of clients virtually and Mm -hmm. I just don't have the hours to support what a CF needs observations are always um welcome and okay as long as you know we follow all the protocols but
0: yeah okay do you fine. do you get to do i know that you were able to do a stuttering camp through mm-hmm. cu mm-hmm. do you offer mentorship opportunities just because of your your unique setup your mm-hmm. your passion for this just opportunities to keep talking about working with people who stutter yeah
1: the mentorship opportunity i i offer to anybody who reach out People reach out and they say, can you take an intern? Are you taking employees? Can I work, you know? And I think because so many people do love this area and they're Mm -hmm. like, oh, you're doing exactly what I'd love to do. I would love to have a private practice and be fluency focused or, you know, and I'll say stuttering focused. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah. And. And my response is always, I'm so sorry. I'm not really set up for that as a solo practitioner working out of my home right now. However, I am very open to any questions, any meetings, any, like, I'm happy to let you know, oh, yeah, I'm going to this conference or this group meeting and, like, you should come or I'm going to be at this event. And, hey, if you're in town, it would, I'd love to meet with you there or grab coffee sometime or, I mean, people are welcome to email me mm-hmm. anytime. So I'm always open to communication, answering questions, and and even connecting people with other SLPs who maybe are working in larger clinics or have the ability to take on interns and CFs. Yeah.
0: So you also, just because I want to know where all your wealth of knowledge comes from also, you have your website, which I will definitely link below in the show notes. What other resources do you want to put out there for people to look into
1: Gosh, there's a a lot of really great stuff. I started this blog called the Cadence Speech Blog. The focus of that blog being to really share the stories of people who stutter. It's less clinical, although there is clinical information that gets woven in through people's experiences, but it just really highlights the stories of people who stutter and things that they've learned throughout their journey, and um, I definitely welcome people to go look through those profiles and those articles on the Cadence Speech blog. When it comes to more clinical blogs like Stuttering Therapy Resources, STR, they're fantastic. Um, They have a lot of great stuff on there about assessment and atypical disfluencies and like some other things that we just didn't get into. Katie Gore with Speech IRL has done some really, really great work on her blog as well. The ISAD website, the International Stuttering Awareness Day website, has a wealth of resources, essays, poems. Um, there's, there's stuff from professionals in our field, and there's also a lot from just voices of people who stutter. There, there are just so many national organizations doing really incredible work. Obviously, you've got the Stuttering Foundation. You've got NSA, the National Stuttering Association. You've got SAY, Stuttering Association for the Young. Um so I think on my website I link to a lot of these kinds of national org website friends of course it cannot <laughs> I cannot miss mentioning friends cuz they do such great work. Yeah, so so I would say if you're like brand new to this and you're wondering kind of where to start, I would love for you to check out my blog. I'd love for you to check out STR's blog, Speech IRL cuz Katie Gore is incredible. Um the national orgs are fantastic. Oh, go look up John Hendrickson and the work he's been doing. His book, Life on Delay, is just gorgeous. And um, Christopher Anderson released a book this last year. All about, It was really about his experience in the avoidance reduction therapy group led by Vivian Siskin, who's an SLP. I believe she's based in Maryland. And he wrote a book called Every Waking Moment. And that's on Amazon. And that one has a lot more um, kind of clinical information. Even though Christopher is not an SLP, he really gets into it with what is avoidance reduction therapy and how it really helped him. So, those are definitely books I would recommend.
0: Great. This and is a I want, no, that's good. That's good. Cause I can link all okay. of it in the show notes okay. for people who are interested and want to find somewhere to start. Like, this is all great resources because also they can find out which one is easiest to navigate to yeah. start with, too. So we always wrap up our podcast with a fun question, which is, what is your favorite book, TV series, or movie oh that God. you just grab when you need a mood boost? <sighs> okay. <laughs> I'm
1: going to go TV series because um, probably Fleabag is like the most just perfect TV series of all time. Mm-hmm. So I just can't pick a movie or a book. I do have a book that I love, but... I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go fleet bag on this.
0: Okay. Yeah. I love that. And then lastly, where can all of our listeners find you where they can follow along, reach out to you, any information you want to share?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, you can visit my website at uh, cadencespeech.com or you can email me at allegra at
0: Great. And all of that will be also linked in the show notes. Allegra, thank you so much for coming on. I think this was so great. I think there's so much people are gonna learn from this. But thank you so so much. Thank you. And everyone, we will catch you next week. Thank you, Christy. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to Speeching It Real. You can contact me anytime at speechingitreal at gmail.com. Come to me with any questions you want answered, people you'd like me to interview, or any suggestions.